Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Trisha Kaffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture with a special mini-series in Landscape Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please drop me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And today I have a special guest for you because I love parks and I requested this book. Uh, It is Parks and Recreation System Planning published by Island Press in 2020, and the author is David Barth. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Tricia. Let's start with, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. So I'm, a, I'm trained as a landscape architect, and then I'm certified as a, a planner and as a parks and recreation professional. I have about 40-plus years' experience in, in both park system planning as well as individual park design. Um, and I've worked all across the United States from San Diego to Norfolk, Virginia, to Raleigh, to Miami-Dade, um, doing uh, park system plans for communities. Um, and most recently, I went back to school in 2012 for my doctorate in the University of Florida, uh, which was really the genesis for this book. Um, my research at the University of Florida was about um, what are the factors that lead to the adoption of innovation in the planning and design of public spaces. And from that book came this idea of high-performance public spaces, or I'm sorry, from that research came the idea of high-performance public spaces. And from that, plus my practice led to this book. So what was your motivation for writing this book or for your interest in parks? So uh, there's actually two separate questions. Um, The interest in parks um, has just been with me uh, all my life, Uh, um, particularly somebody who really enjoys outdoors. So uh, you know, going all the way back, I give a lot of credit to the Boy Scouts um, for my passion and love for hiking and camping and canoeing and, and just being outdoors. Um, I joined a, a firm called Gliding Jackson. This was in 1987. And the uh, principal of Gliding Jackson said, why don't we take your um, interest in, in outdoors? Um, and I had started a canoe outfitting business at the time, by the way, so I was doing outdoor canoe tours. And he said, let's start a parks practice. So uh, I give him all the credit for, for uh, the idea of taking my passion and, and combining that with landscape architecture and starting a parks practice. Um, in terms of the, the idea for the, the book, um, what I've realized, because again, I've been practicing system planning for years and years and years, and I only recently realized that I kind of grew up in the landscape architecture profession at the same exact time that sustainability um, became a, a buzzword in the planning and design circles. So, you know, the Brutland Commission report was published in 1987, and that's when I started working for, uh, for Gladding Jackson. Um, and so, you know, I had been doing parks planning for a while, but slowly, gradually understood that the traditional parks planning process um, really wasn't designed to deal with sustainability and resiliency. It was really um, an 
older process that was focused on just parks and recreation. And so came to the realization that it was time for probably a new book to come out that maybe would replace the National Recreation Parks Association guidelines, which were published in 1996, um, that talked about how we can weave resiliency, sustainability, livability into the park system planning process. Well, I like this um, in your introduction, and you talked about your professor um, who inspired you, and he said to seek out patterns, puzzle making, and systems that define urban design. Um, that's it. That's true. A park is a puzzle. Um, how did you find that you you improved on the puzzle making process of design for parks? That sounds like a complicated question. Yeah, I'm going to ponder this one. I'm going to ramble and ponder at the same time. Um, I think the puzzle making for me comes from this idea that there's so many moving parts. And and part of uh, working for 25 years in this firm that I joined um, was I was exposed to all these different disciplines. This was a firm in Orlando. I ran the, the South Florida office. Um but we had transportation planning, we had land use planning, we had private land development, we had environmental planning, uh, we had urban design. So we had all these pieces of community. And I think one of the things I always enjoyed about landscape architecture and planning was I enjoyed looking for those patterns, how things fit together at a really large scale. Um, and so I think that was so, you know, several parts. One was I was train in this multidisciplinary environment where I, I became aware of the need to integrate what we do with all these other disciplines. And then just um, innately, I just have a real interest in, in seeing how things fit together to create a big picture. So I think it's those two things combined. Now you talk about, um, about criteria for high performance public spaces. Can you um, elaborate a little bit more on that? you got economic, environmental, social. What are yeah. the criteria? And you can tell me to stop whenever you want, because I can take a long time talking about this. Um, when I was doing my dissertation, again, I was trying to figure out the factors that lead to the adoption of innovation in the design of public spaces. I had recently had an experience with the city of Kissimmee's Lakefront Park, and I don't know if, it, if anybody in your audience has seen it, but it's a, it's a really stellar example of, a, of an urban signature park done by a fairly small community. And so... When I went back to school, I was trying to understand why the experience in that park was such a gratifying experience, why there were so many innovative ideas adopted, um, and, and why I had other experiences in my career that weren't so fulfilling. In order to identify case studies of transformative projects, which is what I decided to do, which is a mixed methods case study approach to research, um, I had to come up with what do I call those kinds of spaces that are transformative? There really wasn't a handy name. And so we determined, or we decided to call spaces that generated multiple benefits for the community. We decided to call those high performance public spaces. And then in order to identify my case studies, I had to come up with criteria for a high performance public space, because again, how was I gonna decide what is and isn't? And we formed what's called a Delphi committee, which is a committee of experts um, both in and outside of University of Florida. And we went through three rounds of brainstorming for what would the criteria be for a public space that generated multiple benefits for the community outside of the boundaries of the park. And 
in keeping with the, the three legs of sustainability we talked about, environmental benefits we talked about, social benefits and economic benefits. And so there's a list of 25 criteria. What I concluded was that in order to qualify as a high performance public space, it needed to meet at least 80% of the criteria because I wanted to make sure that anything I called a high performance public space would at least have some of all three of the of the legs of the stool. So a high performance public space couldn't just be one that excelled environmentally or socially or economically. It had to have some elements of all three. Some of the criteria, for example, environmental would be um, stormwater treatment, or it might be the use of pervious pavement. Um, social might be that it provides a gathering space for the community, or um, it, uh, it provides equitable opportunities for folks. And you know, economic could be that it actually creates jobs or that it results in increased property values of adjacent spaces, um, uh, or it attracts businesses uh, and individuals to the community. So they're fairly subjective criteria, uh, but it's kind of like the, you know, the adage that you know one when you see one. And so the criteria really helped me identify the case studies that I could look at um, to understand the factors that lead to the adoption of innovation. Can you discuss a few other case studies, you know, any other parks that um, that you found that met that criteria? Yeah, I think the ones that we all know about, um, and I haven't gone and evaluated them, but, you know, the High Line in New York, um, uh, Historic Fourth Ward Park in Atlanta, Discovery Green in, um, in Houston. I think, you know, we know those stellar transformative projects. Um, and generally, those are hitting on all cylinders, right? They're, they're doing all kinds of things for the community, which is why they're so well recognized. Um, but those are just some that come to the top of my head. Uh, the Beltline, you know, the Beltline Atlanta is another one. So. Well, you have also a, a new approach to parks and recreation system planning. And, um, and you talk about a few of those parks in here. Um, in particular, um, like Soundscape Park in Miami. Um, how is that a good park? Yeah, I don't know enough about the details of Soundscape Park. When I've been there, um, you know, one of the things that was great was it's just such a, a wonderful social gathering space. Um, and so I haven't seen what happens to it during the day, and I don't know all the other aspects. But I think it certainly has social and economic benefits that it generates for the community. I don't know as much about the environmental benefits it generates, um, but it meets at least some of the criteria of a high-performance public space. So how do you plan a perfect park? I guess that was kind of my question. What's a perfect park? Have you done it? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want you to first define the word perfect. But um, I think, um, you know, there's a group in New York called the Project for Public Spaces. And they do a wonderful job of talking about what makes a great public space. And they talk about activation. They talk about placemaking. And they talk about the power of 10. And I think the word activation is used a lot now in park design that a great public space has all of these elements of what I talk about in a high performance public space, right? There's different things going on. Um, there's different benefits being generated for the community. Um, so it starts with really, really good listening. Um, so every great public space project starts with the planners and designers being totally open to the needs of the community, really, really understanding what the community wants and needs Oftentimes, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here and remind me if I, if I forget to come back. Oftentimes, we as landscape architects and designers are, 
are criticized because we design something that we think is just wonderful and it looks beautiful on paper and it fulfills our desires, almost like a work of art. And I think that, you know, there's pretty good acknowledgement around the profession that great public spaces respond to the needs of the community, not to the designer. So I think great public space starts with understanding context, you know, suburban, urban, rural, agricultural, environmental, wherever the context is, it starts with understanding the needs and desires of the users. And it very traditionally, like Ian McCarg taught us, you know, moons ago, that you allow the, the design to evolve layer by layer by layer if you, if you, as you insert kind of layers of meaning. Um, there's a great firm, Nelson Bird Waltz, who did the city gardens in St. Louis. And I love hearing them talk about the process that they use to design that. And it starts with understanding the history and culture of the area, um, understanding the people, understanding the context, and then they carefully craft um, the park design to respond to all those. And so what you see at the end is something that may look very simple and elegant, um, but yet has all kinds of meaning in the design that are um, very subtle, but really, really powerful. So that, that's kind of my long-winded answer to a perfect park. No, I think that that's it's a very good point. That's true, because we kind of had that discussion. Like um, Some people felt like the designer is the one to, I don't know, be almost like a dictator. I'm like, no. As, as I had a business before. It's like, you know, it's, it's about what the client wants. Yes. Yeah, you're the facilitator. So. Yeah. We are, we're starting a project right now. I'm going to ramble on you again. We're starting a project in a community on Amelia Island. And there's um, an historic black beach that was, uh, it's, it's kind of considered a hallowed ground. It's called American Beach. Um, because during segregation, that's where the African-American community could go and be free to enjoy the beach. And we're working with that community um, to take a look at how we revitalize their neighborhood, which so you have a, a beachside neighborhood. Um, and, you know, we did a walking tour a week or two ago. We just sat around and talked at a, a workshop at one of the parks. But, you know, it starts with just listening to what the needs and desires are of that community before you ever start drawing anything. Well, that's why I really liked your chapter on um, chapter eight, the needs assessment. And um, my, my bachelor's degree was actually in psychology. Um, I didn't have any interest in therapy, I, but I really loved the experimental design process. Um, and it really taught us how to think. So how do you like elicit from somebody or from a community what, what they really want? What do you want? What you really, really want? So one of the things I learned by going back to school was I really didn't ever understand uh, applied social science research. I didn't know that when you pursue your PhD, you're actually learning to become a researcher. And I've been doing needs assessments for years, but I didn't realize that was research. And so I, I came away from that program with kind of a, a renewed sense of what a needs assessment should be. So the way we practice a needs assessment is we say we are, we are researchers and we are going out to the community to try to unearth what their needs, desires, issues are. And the only way to do that is to use multiple techniques because a single technique, is, as many of you who are listening know, if you just have a public meeting, the folks who show up are typically folks who have a certain um, issue or agenda that they want to pursue, but you don't have any way of knowing if they represent the larger community. So the only way to, to understand the needs of a community, whether it's a city or a county or a neighborhood, 
is that you have to use a whole variety of techniques to try to kind of um, understand or unearth what the top priority needs are. So we use um, quantitative techniques like level of service analysis. We, uh, wherever we can, we insist on doing a statistically representative survey, which is the gold standard in needs assessments because it's the only technique that's based on a random sample of, of residents. We um, complement that with online surveys um, and sometimes surveys during workshops uh, where we're trying to compare the results from the online survey, which is open to anybody, to the statistically representative survey, which is based on a random sample. Um, and so those are some of the quantitative techniques. Qualitative techniques, which we often do before we ever start the quantitative ones, by the way, um, are interviews, focus group meetings, um, reviewing previous documents. So it, it's the combination of all those different techniques where you start seeing the same things occurring over and over. You start hearing the same buzzwords. That's what gives you the, the confidence that your findings are valid. Um, and so, you know, they, there's, a, there's a phrase in applied social science research that talks about both internal validity and external, right? So external validity, the way I understand it is is that credible to your audience, to the people you're presenting to? So you have the internal validity, which is, you know, do you believe that this is following good scientific practices? But probably most important is, do the elected officials or the citizens find your findings to be credible? So again, it's that combination of all those techniques um, that allows you to have a needs assessment that you can have confidence in. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. That's true. It's a good point because I've seen um, uh, a lot of projects done in landscape architecture too. It's like they just did a community meeting, but you don't always have time to get to a community meeting, even if you want to go. Yeah, the, and, the, and the number of people. So it's been interesting for those of you who have been involved in Zoom meetings and all the different online techniques since the pandemic begins, because we're recording this, we're still in the midst of the pandemic, but um, it's it's done wonders for increasing, I think, landscape architects and, and planners chops regarding different public involvement techniques. So we have more tools than we've ever had before. So it's so easy now to do focus group meetings online, interviews online. You can touch a lot of people in a, in a fairly uh, rapid or, or fairly uh, limited uh, time frame. Um, uh, as opposed to just relying on the public meeting where maybe a handful of people show up. So uh, we, have a, we have a whole bunch more tools in the toolkit than we did a year ago. Well, after you gather, what's the next step? Now you've gathered all the information and you talked about a, a project that you're working on. What's the next step after that? How do you, how do you put it all together? You mean in the, in the planning process? Yeah. Um, I'm going to back you up just for a second because I, I talk about this in the book. Um, mm -hmm that one of the things that I think is really important if you want to do a planning process that j isn't just about the design of the park, but is about generating benefits broader than 
what you may normally think of, sustainability benefits, resiliency benefits, et cetera, that at the very beginning of the project, you talk about what dimensions of community you wish to address. And are you interested in health problems? Are you interested in social equity? Are you interested in economic development? Uh, in the book, I talk about there's over 50 dimensions that I just developed by sitting down for a half an hour and, and listing what are the different dimensions you think about. So it's important at the beginning of a design process or a planning process to be intentional about the kind of benefits that you wish to create as opposed to just doing a design. So if I want to create stormwater benefits, I have certain people I need to talk to that may be different than if I want to generate economic benefits. And so the, the reason I was backing up is because I believe that those dimensions that you're pursuing color everything else you do in the planning or design process. So your needs assessment may look a little bit different if you have one dimension versus another. But assuming that you've done that and they have all the data that you want to collect, then the next steps are that you compile all the data and, and there's no, it's not rocket science. You really are doing what researchers call coding. You're going through all your notes, you're going through surveys, and you're looking for the commonalities where you say, you know what, this really appears to be an important issue for this community because it's appearing everywhere. It's appearing in my surveys. It's appearing in my uh, interviews. It's appearing in my uh, workshops. Um, so you identify those, those broad themes. And generally what we're trying to do is figure out top priorities because no community has enough resources to do everything. Your elected officials who have to find the needs assessment to be valid and who have to decide whether or not they're going to fund what you're proposing, they have to believe um, that it's credible and they only have limited resources. So they want to know what are the top priorities of the overall community. But once we've done that, once we've summarized the needs and the priorities, then in our practice, we, we still hold off on design uh, or planning. We start having a series of what we call visioning workshops. And they're, they're simply brainstorming workshops centered around each of the top priorities. So, for example, if we say that the needs assessment indicates that there is a real interest in designing for stormwater improvements, we want to make sure that every public space in the community addresses stormwater because this community may have a flooding problem or a water quality problem, maybe adjacent to uh, a waterway that they want to improve the water quality of then we would do a workshop where we'd invite five to 10 people who are really knowledgeable about that topic. And we would brainstorm what's the appropriate response is a phrase we use. What's the appropriate response to that need for that community? And then we may move on. Then we have, let's say the second one, uh, a typical one for parks and recreation agencies is aquatics. So let's say the community says it's a top priority that we want um, an aquatics facility. Well, you have to then bring in all the aquatics experts and you have to talk about what's the role of that community. First of all, does the community want to be in the aquatics business? Um, is one response to the need for aquatics to contract with an, uh, another provider? So, for example, a YMCA or a university. Um, so we brainstorm the appropriate response um, to each of the, the topics. I'll give you one more example. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, preparing the summary from a visioning workshop today that was on trails because every one of our needs assessments, um, one of the top priorities is for trails and bikeways. And that seems to be across the United States. Um, a lot of agencies we work with are not in the trails business. 
you know, they've not traditionally done trails and bikeways. Oftentimes that's been relegated to say a public works department. So we brainstorm what's the appropriate response to the need for trails in the community. And it also forces us, I go back to the dimensions, it forces us to bring in all kinds of partners, which is a good thing. So um, we may have parks folks, public works folks, administration folks, engineering folks, uh, all their bicycle advocates, all those folks involved in talking about uh, how do we initiate a trails and bikeway system or improve one that exists uh, for a community that we're working in, especially in suburban communities. So I, I hope I answered that question. You would ask me, how do we pull it all together after the needs assessment? But those are some of the examples. No, 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 thank you. That was perfect. And, um, and I guess I'll have to back up too. you know, you talk about in your book also about um, connecting parks to the urban fabric. Um, how does, how do you do that? How does that all work together? So we go back to this idea of patterns. If, if you, um, if you think about a particular park and you go to an aerial photo, you can see that that park isn't an island. It's actually connected to a lot of other stuff. Um, there's a firm years ago, I don't remember their name, but they did what was called figure grounds where they would take everything on a map and make it either black or white. So you'd say, let's make everything in this community that's publicly owned black. And once you do that, you, you automatically see all the connections, right? Waterways, bikeways, trails, um, transit, uh, stormwater, stormwater and utility corridors, um, everything that's publicly owned, what, what we call is in the, the, you know, the public realm. Um, let you see the fabric that's there. And so once you recognize that, and again, I think a big part is just being aware that the, the piece of land you're working on is not an island, but it's connected to a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, once you're aware that's part of a fabric, you start seeing opportunities to address certain issues. Um, you, you start looking beyond that site and you say, oh, you know what? Um, I'll give you an example. If I were doing trail planning, I'm looking for where there are trailheads at about five miles apart. Apart. Once I start identifying the fabric, I start seeing sites that might be destinations that can connect point A to point B through, let's say, a five-mile trail corridor. Well, all of a sudden now, each of those two sites take on a different meaning than just being an isolated park. They may now be the bookends of a trail corridor with trailheads at two ends. So the, the whole idea is, is being aware of how the site you're working on fits into the overall public realm and um, what opportunities there are to help meet residents' needs uh, using the entire fabric, not just using that particular site. So really, we're still at the point of just gathering information and research. We're not, um, and uh, you're going to bring it back to the city council or government at this point, or do you start design or what's the next step? So I like to think in the book, I talk about it. It's a cyclical process. It's not a linear process. So you do some work and then you come back and you discuss it with your staff. And if you're working for a public agency and you present, say, the needs assessment findings um, to the elected officials and you make sure that everybody believes the results are credible. And then you say, OK, let's go to the next step. And then you go to the visioning step and then you come back with your ideas um, by the way, we don't wait to talk about implementation at the end. We start talking about implementation from the very beginning. So each time you're talking about needs or a vision, um, you know, you're also talking about how are we going to fund this. And that's one of the mistakes we make as planners sometimes is we wait to the very end to talk about money and implementation and changes to the comp plan and changes to the codes. And in the book, we talk about the importance 
of doing that from the very beginning. So our best projects are where we have touched elected officials through one-on-one interviews, through interim workshops, um, maybe four or five or more times during a planning process. So we're not surprising them with anything at the end. And then ultimately, you get down to the level of design, right? You can go from broad initiatives and needs assessment, broad dimensions and needs assessments and long-range visioning, and then you're finally ready to apply all that to uh, one or more sites. And oftentimes, that's a, a separate scope of work. You know, the, the, the project uh, system plan generates a bunch of different projects, and then each one of those projects gets a new scope of work to go into the design process, at which you start public involvement all over again. So it is a cyclical, cyclical process. Well, that's a good point. You don't want to just do something and then hit them with a price tag, and then they go, <gasps> Oh, oh yeah, that, it's painful when <laughs> it's painful when that happens, and I have enough wounds that it took me a while. I wasn't the quickest study; it took me a while to understand that. But uh, after getting beat up enough, I uh, realized that that was not the way to go. And so, yeah, so our, our, we adopted that idea in our practice a good while ago that we don't ever do that again. Um, you know, we we make sure that we're building consensus all along the process. Well, it's true, and I did and thinking about it, it's like that's that's. That's when you kind of run into trouble too, because then they're going to be like, "Well, we got to cut this, or we got to cut that," and then you're like, yeah. "No." <laughs> oh, the the for anyone who who does this work, you know that when you're done, um, you're you're surprised if you have identified less than a hundred million dollars worth of improvements, right? For larger cities, you know, it could be closer to a billion dollars, um, and so, and you know that none of your agencies have that, you know, it's not like they're sitting on that money. Um, so you've got to understand what their um, fiscal position is. You've got to understand what, uh, whether they're conservative fiscally. Uh, we've got some communities who don't want to borrow money. They want to do all pay as you go. You've got to understand actual funding projections. And at the end of the day, you have to take priorities and funding and match them, right? So you have to present to a board, here's a realistic, feasible phasing approach based on projections from your own finance and budget folks and, and what we think is realistic. So that that's an art into itself. Well, even if you, um, that's designing too, though, when you were, ta- I was thinking about that, that's yes. just, yes. <laughs> that's getting creative. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. Again, it's at a different scale. So it's, it's um, understanding at each of the scales, what the funding alternatives are and, and what's realistic. Well, now I, it kind of leads me to a, a question. Like if I'm say a small county, can I afford a process like this so I can get a great park or, or how does that work? So you're talking about a, a, a say a countywide planning process? Or just like say um, I'm here uh, in Oklahoma County. And uh, my parents live here and, and I'm visiting and, um, you know, I don't have a lot of money. Can I, can I afford a great park or is this too much? So in terms of, uh, I want to be clear in terms of the planning process or actual construction of a great park? Um, the planning, you know, um, okay. if I was a commissioner, I'm sitting there yep. going, I, I love it. I, I totally get where this is going. Um, can, can I afford the planning yes. part? Got it. So, I agree with you. Small towns and rural communities are not used to paying large fees for planning and design services. Um, a lot of uh, my clients start off uh, 
as rural communities. And mostly what they did is they built boat ramps and roads and maybe a ball field. And in real rural communities, the ball fields were built by volunteers. Um, so no one was ever paying fees to design firms or planning firms for, for this kind of work. Um, what I found is in those communities, uh, oftentimes there are things you can do that, that are real cost effective, especially if you can use resources that they already have. Um, I've got one client, a small town in Tennessee, where we're doing a planning process over an extended period of time. So they can just budget X amount of year, X, X amount of dollars per year, and we're phasing the project. Um, we have some clients really like a collaborative approach and they've got staff um, and they just need some external coaching and staff is willing to do a lot of the legwork. So it, it starts with having that conversation early on about what resources they do have available and how do you make the best use out of their, out of their available dollars. So, yeah, I would, I, I'm hesitant to say that, um, that there's ever a community that can't afford to do a, a really great planning job. It's just a matter of um, how do you structure it so it's, it's affordable to them. But there's no reason that planning needs to be um, unaffordable. Yeah, because I was thinking about there's a lot of some there's a few small parks around here, and it's like mm-hmm. yeah, they feel like it just kind of stuck things in there. Like yes. I like I like a baseball field. We stuck it in there. Yeah. Well, so that's been traditionally, especially in small towns and rural communities, you know, they have a piece of land, they need a ball field, and and somebody knows a contractor, and this is how it used to be done, right? Hey, Billy or Fred, you know, let's get together and and let's build a ball field for the kids. Um, and the community would come together. And so um, they normally didn't do site master plans, and that's where I think landscape architects and, and designers excel. And so, you know, master plans can be done um, in a cost-effective way. Sometimes it's just a quick conceptual sketch. I'm working with, um, here where I live in Gainesville, Florida, the, the uh, we did a citywide plan for uh, Gainesville. We identified um, over 50 projects. The county and the city passed a uh, sales tax referendum. And the way the city has gone about building its parks is hiring design firms like mine to do conceptual sketches and hiring a design-build contractor to work with us in the field. So we are bypassing, especially for smaller projects, we're bypassing the whole construction drawing process and we're doing a lot of stuff on site um, and I can't say that the quality of the, the spaces has dropped there's been a lot of wonderful parks that have been designed and constructed through this process so um, and I think it's a really cost-effective way to do that so if a little s- small city like Gainesville can do it then um, the rest of us can do it too yeah I think there's I mean there's great examples I, I mentioned Kissimmee Lakefront Park that was a 35 million dollar uh, park renovation that a city of 60,000 people did. They, they funded it in a variety of ways. On the day that ground was broken, this was back in 2007, the mayor said, people ask us why we're spending 30, $35 million on a park in the middle of a recession. And he says, the reason we're spending $35 million is because we're in the middle of a recession. And he totally understood. He saw the park design and construction as an investment in their downtown. And he believed that the return on investment was going to be incredible, which it has been. Um, the, the amount of development that's been attracted to Kissimmee, the, the property value increases, um, the revitalization of downtown has, has repaid him, um, you know, probably tenfold. So, uh, 
Um, I always, I always was inspired by his, his uh, courage and his statement to the public about why they were investing that money. I think that's a good point too. Um, I like that he said that because so many times we gloss over the the psychological uh, positive impacts, and and psychology has a positive economic impact. Yeah, your terms of the perception of the of the investment, I think, is uh, a good part of that, right? That you want. That was. Um, I'm going to go off on a tangent on you again. I talked about in my research. I was looking for the factors that that influence adoption of innovation. And there were three major factors. And the first one was a strong leader, you know, a, a leader that grasped the um, innovation and encouraged the community to adopt it. So the strong charismatic leader was a critical factor for these transformative spaces. So we tend to believe if, if there's someone we believe in and they tell us this is going to be really good for the community, then we, we tend to have confidence and, and we'll follow that person. Um, another factor was a collaborative design team, and another factor was just openness to the public, you know, willingness to, uh, um, to be transparent and open to the public. So all those are, are psychological aspects. Um, and one of the factors that was not one of the top three, though, was the perception of the return on investment, the perception that the innovation was going to be worth the investment. And that's, again, where that strong leader comes from. So all those, I think, are psychological. Yeah, uh, I think so, too. And um, in addition to if people, I don't know, if you, it's encouraging to go to a park, I guess I should say. You know, if you're, you know, you're looking for a job let's, or something like that, and, you know, you're trying to get out there, but, you know, we all need a, a good break so that you feel relaxed, so that you can go to a good interview. I think that um, in a practical aspect, it's it's nice to go to a park and, uh, refresh, hit the re- hit the reset button. That that helps you to work better too. Oh, I I think so. I, I think everybody has a different aspect that they like. For me, it's being out in a natural area on a river. For others, it can be a, a park in an urban environment. You know, you, whether it's a pocket park. You know, the the uh, little Paley Park in New York City was one of the most famous pocket parks. That it's got a waterfall. It's got a cafe table. It's just a wonderful place to sit. It's cool. Um, you can't hear the noise of surrounding New York City streets because of the waterfall, you know, the fountain and the enclosure. So you actually can um, kind of regroup and get reinvigorated. So, yeah, I think every park has that, that opportunity um, and, and people gravitate towards the kind of spaces that spiritually uh, is, is most renewing to them. So yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah, that, that parks do more for us than just... Um dollars and cents. Uh, yep. it, it does. Um, so, okay, we, we've moved along here. You've presented it. You've got everybody on board <laughs> and I keep jumping forward. So, so then how do you like the you know, landscape architects listening and go, Hey, how do we get in the nitty gritty, the fun part, you know, the designing <laughs> part? <laughs> you're, you're, so I, I'm laughing because I've got a project right now where the designers are asking that exact question. When can we start? Right. And I have to say, not yet, not yet, not yet. Um, so yeah, I think you know at the at the point where if you're doing a system plan, at the point where you've identified the needs of the community, and that's critical. So um, oftentimes, again, we will start designing a project and we don't have a clear picture of who we're serving and what their needs are. So I think a needs assessment is really critical. But once you know what the needs are, once you know what the budget is, then um, all the designers on the listening in 
would be familiar with the term development program, which is what are the list of uses and the activities that you're designing? And once you have that, which comes from a needs assessment oftentimes, then you're ready to go, right? You, you've done all your site analysis. You understand opportunities and constraints of both the site and the surrounding areas. You understand how the site fits into the broader context. You understand the needs of the community. You are finally ready to hop in and start designing. And then what I love about design, if we're really good, we go all the way back to what the key dimensions are because we may have a list of uses, but we have to go back to, are we trying to treat stormwater? Are we trying to create economic development opportunities? Are we also trying to um, create transportation connectivity? Uh, are we trying to address youth obesity? So in addition to the kind of list of uses, we have all the more subtle things um, that, again, projects like I think City Gardens in, in St. Louis do so well, which is, is we're not only doing the things that are um, concrete uh, and tangible, but we're also really dealing with intangibles as well. So great designs to me are ones that hit on both levels, right? They're, they're talking about history and culture and they're talking about economic development and, and quality of life, but then they're also doing things like providing places to play football and providing a place to rent a kayak and, and a place to ride your bike and all those things. So you're right, that, that is the fun part. And uh, I think the designers who are armed with the knowledge of both needs as well as context do, a, a, I think, a, a much better job because they've got so much to work with. Well, I was just thinking, I was like, you know, when you started with all this research and stuff, then you don't have also the disappointment at the end. Well, you know, they my idea got cut out or or they didn't like my idea because at that point, you're pretty much assured of what you're going to go and it's going to actually get built because you've yeah. done the budgeting. Yeah, you've got the, the, the buy-in. Everybody's excited about it. You have tons of ideas that will generate design ideas. So you have so much to work with, right? History, culture, recreation, economic development, all these layers and layers and layers. So you now also you have a much richer um, palette of, of uh, thoughts and ideas that can be translated into design than if you just started with, oh, I'm going to design a ball field complex or I'm going to design a bike path or whatever. So yeah, I think it makes the designs far better. We know what I appreciate in this book here is too, is the appendix. Like you don't just leave me as a reader to go, okay, oh, I got to figure out all this stuff. You, you've, you've given me some, some guidelines here. You may be the only person I've ever talked to who appreciates an appendix. So, <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> so yeah, that the idea was that, you know, the book's got three parts. The first part of the book is all philosophical. It's big ideas. Um, the second part's kind of transitional, but the third part is a step-by-step -step guide to how you do system planning. And that's where the appendices came from, because as I was doing that, I say, well, it'd be helpful to for somebody instead of just talking about it, to say, here's an example. You know, here's another example. So I'm glad you appreciate that. Thank you. Um, but yeah, the idea was to provide a toolkit. There, there's not been a book out that talks about how you do this, um, you know, for 20 or 30 years. So um, that was part of the, the market I was trying to fill was to, for people who want to do park system planning, but maybe haven't gone through it before. Here's a step-by-step -step guide. And the front of the book is more, here's why you're doing those things. Yeah, it's just, it's really a complete book. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I was going to say too, uh, it made me think about parks and, and ways to enjoy it. I remember I read about Claude Monet 
And um, one of his reasons for painting the lily ponds at his uh, residence, you know, his gardens that he designed, he it was a gift to the city. And, you know, they did the lingerie in Paris and they put his paintings up. But it was after the war and everything was destroyed and desolate, but it gave people a place to, if you couldn't have a real park, at least you could go in this building and pretend like huh. you're in a real park. Yeah, yeah. I like that. They, they, uh, I'm, I'm going to give you a sketchy idea and folks who are listening may know what I'm talking about, but I don't know the name of it. There are, there's a company that has taken his paintings and others and, um, show them in 3d. Uh, I saw them in an old, uh, a mine outside of, of, uh, uh, in the Provence region in, in France, but there's exhibits in the United States. I think there's one in DC where, the, the paintings are, are projected on the ceiling, walls, and floor and set to music. And so you're actually inside the paintings. You're looking at these beautiful works of art while you're listening to music in a cool, dark environment. I, I, find it, I found it incredibly um, uplifting. You're, you're just literally floating through these different artists' work. Um, so I don't know the name of those exhibits, um, <laughs> I wish I could tell you, um, but it was a great experience. Oh, God, that sounds awesome to put in a park, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, David, um, I know we've taken up a lot of your time today, and but I really want to thank you for being here. I know you're a busy, busy guy. Um, uh, can you tell the audience, uh, what, are you, what are some other projects that you're working on now? Any other books for us to look forward to? I'm not working on any books. I'm, I'm back working on projects. So, you know, I'm working on some strategic planning projects for some communities and some park system plans and projects like the, the American Beach project I talked about and some park projects. So um, I think it'll be a while before I write another book. So, um, but uh, I've been writing articles periodically, so I may do that again as well. But mostly focused on projects right now. Well, we look, uh, we look forward to seeing how some of your projects uh, get built. Yeah, thank um, you. And uh, et cetera. So, well, again, I want to let the audience know that the book is Parks and Recreation System Planning, A New Approach for Creating Sustainable, Resilient Communities by David Barth, PhD. It is published by Island Press in 2020. And I am Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture with a special miniseries in Landscape Architecture a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please drop me a line at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And thank you for listening.